to another episode of Just Jerry Live, Plotting Perspectives in Church Life with Todd Bryant and Jeff Short. This is the day. This is the day, and I, I'm glad to see it come. I, I don't. What I'm really wondering about is whether or not we're going to be able to recover all three of our regular listeners that we have lost by taking so long to go through this book. You know, I've actually been contacted by a few people that have said they, they've listened to some of these, but not all of them. <laughs> I don't know of anybody that's listened to all of them, probably not even your mother. No, you're probably right. She she has probably not heard all of these. But I I do hope that we have at least given something more than a Goodreads review, which I, I'm sure both of us will probably do this afternoon. But in several hours of podcasting, we've given a whole lot more information than we'll be able to give on a Goodreads review. So if somebody wants to know our opinion about this book a little bit more in depth, maybe this has given them something to chew on. Right. All right. So we actually finished the book proper in our last podcast, and that leaves just the appendices to deal with. And they're really short and in no way are digging into these subjects at all. Would I was a little bit surprised at how short they are. I mean, he he starts out by acknowledging that there were some major issues and passages that he did not address, and really I felt like he really still didn't address them <laughs> because these appendices are only about a, a page or two, I guess, uh, at the most. Yeah, I, I honestly sat down to read them this morning, and I, I make a lot of notes when I'm reading because it helps me as we work through our podcast. And, I mean, I had them read and noted up in 20, 25 minutes at the most. Of course, it's a short book anyway, but I'll be honest with you, I don't even know that I would have included these appendices, though, if I was not going to give a little bit more information because there are some big subjects here and they're just sort of brushed over. Yeah. All right. So he begins talking about Jesus's end time prophecies, but he really only he really only looks at Matthew 24. (laughs) I thought it was really comical almost that uh, his last statement in his introduction on this this appendix is let me give you a quick overview of perhaps the most difficult of Jesus's end time prophecies, Matthew 24. And I couldn't help but laugh because this is why it didn't make it into the book. Because in the book, he's wanting to find things that are, quote, clear and simple, unquote. And this is not. So he's just going to throw it in here in just a couple of chapters. Right. You know, so. He doesn't really say a lot here. I mean, I obviously disagree with, you know, his approach to Matthew 24, but he gives such little information that it's it's hard to really hone in on anything. Verse 14 transitions back to the prophecy of Daniel, and he tries to make, you know, 70 A.D. a fulfillment of what Jesus clearly sees as future. I don't think the events of 70 A.D. perfectly match Daniel's prophecies. And I'll make the case that Daniel, which he talks about later, is actually rather clear for the most part. The most the most difficult part of Daniel is the you know, the wars between the North and the South Kingdom, but they're 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 not the first seven or eight chapters for sure. Well he continues to make this same hermeneutical mistake, I think. He's looking at Matthew twenty four and so he's wanting to talk about the time of tribulation. 
But the reality is, is that that's just not the only passage that talks about the tribulation. I mean, that's not the only thing to be considered. No, absolutely. He he really has, in my opinion, for what I was hoping to be a, a decent introduction to amillennialism, as that is his subtitle, not mine. I just feel like he is he has come way short of covering a lot of ground, and I would say the first. Uh, 39 books of the Bible were, weren't touched at all, and that's that's major to me. You know, he mentions, uh, this is right toward the end, I guess it's page 108, verse 29 then transitions to the return of Christ, which seems problematic because verse 29 states immediately after the tribulation of those days, how can the end of the age occur and the return of Christ occur immediately after the tribulation of 70 A.D.? And you know what? That's a good question for Amil views. Although, I, honestly, having read this book, his Amil views seem to be a little quirky from those I would be more familiar with. He he seems to have some oddities in his view that I don't think typically Amils would subscribe to. But the way that he solves that problem is the same way that theistic evolutionists solve problems. There's enough time, for instance, like with the gap theory. So the gap theory of creation, and uh, I've read... At times, you know, people saying basically there's there's enough time, however much time that evolutionistic science is going to require. can It can fit right here between these two verses. And that's sort of the way that he solves this problem because he says, well, 70 A.D. was the tribulation. Oh, but there's more there's more tribulations and there there will be another tribulation here and another tribulation there, which is just not the way that the Bible talks about this time frame as being a time that is unlike any other that has been before or will be afterward. No, absolutely. And again, that's clear. <laughs> those, those are not in any way. By the way, he didn't, he didn't mention that in this Matthew 24 section, which is where Jesus says that. But right. Nevertheless, okay, so he goes on, he talks about what about Daniel? And he says Daniel may be the most complex and difficult of the Old, Old Testament prophetic books. I don't know. I don't know what Daniel he's reading, but Daniel is one of those prophetical books that actually explains what he means so often. Right. Uh, especially, you know, chapter two is clear as crystal. You know, it's it's on this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had. There's there's this image. It obviously represents the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. And that's actually just sort of spelled out in the text. And then there is this prophecy of this literal, physical kingdom on earth that God is going to set up himself. And I guess that's why it gets to be complex and difficult, because that clear passage doesn't fit with all millennialism. But that's actually not that difficult to interpret. I, I don't think Daniel, by and large, is as hard as he's making it out to be. No, I don't think so. And I was surprised by his view of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. Since, you know, Daniel, which is one of the longest of the prophetic books, obviously not as long as Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, but otherwise it's, you know, it's a pretty long book. How, how can that be considered concealing? I mean, Daniel has given us, you know, 12 chapters of, of prophecy. I don't understand how that's supposed to be concealing the the prophecy that's not revealed until revelation 
No, and I know that you would uh, certainly agree here when he says we should use the New Testament to interpret Daniel. I just do not like that language. He goes on and says any interpretation of Daniel that disagrees with the New Testament's clear teaching should be rejected. This narrows down the possible interpretations. It, that, that's just that's just wrong in in the sense that any use of the New Testament which changes the meaning of the Old Testament should be discarded. Right. So it's, I mean, he, he's saying basically what Daniel seems to say clearly. We must interpret another way because I think this one passage in Luke 20, you know, overturns the entire Old Testament, which which, by the way, again, this is about as close as he's gotten to any exposition of the Old Testament. And I think there's a reason for that, because the coming messianic kingdom in the Old Testament is just as clear as crystal. And so it's just handy to ignore it. Well, it is very convenient, you know, when you want to simplify things, if you can just eliminate a lot of what is said about it, then, you know, you can get it down to pretty simple to deal with. Yeah, he he really doesn't do anything with Daniel too much. I, I was a little disappointed in that appendix. The next one is what about Israel? Obviously, there are some differences between all meals on this subject. I actually think you and I would be closer to his position than we would some of our buddies that are all meal. Some Amils don't see any future for the nation of Israel at all. He does, along with guys like R.C. Spruill, who saw a future for the nation of Israel. I remember listening to a conversation that Spruill was having relative to Romans 9 through 11, and he was saying there's just no way to deny that there is going to be some future for ethnic Israel. He just didn't know what that future entailed. Well, typically it doesn't refer any sort of national restoration or specific literal land fulfillment it's it's just some of the amil views the that at right at the return of christ or just prior to that time that there will be a revival among jewish people with you know a large number of them being converted yeah and he brings up the 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 point about the temple sacrifices and the millennial temple okay hold on just a second because that's before that, on page 112, this is at the start, he says, Amillennialism does not allow for a physical reign of Christ on the current earth, but does see Christ reigning on the new earth and sees Christ as currently reigning on the throne of David in the heavenly Jerusalem, which I think is a pretty typical Amil view. But again, notice how that that means, again, Christ is not fulfilling fully the new Adam without any sort of a reign on this earth, only a reign on the new earth in the eternal ages. Absolutely. And it it also doesn't answer a, a ton of questions relative to Christ sitting, you know, Psalm 110, Christ sitting on the Father's throne until the time that his enemies are made his footstool or the promise to, you know, the church in Revelation 3 where he says, you will reign with me on my throne as I have reigned with the Father on his throne. There's some things that are just being missed about that throne of David. The throne of David was an actual earthly throne in Jerusalem, and there's just really no reason to believe that the throne of David is somehow equivalent to God's throne in heaven. Right. Well, and then, you know, you have... They're the passage at the beginning of Luke. It's it's not just David's thrones over David's kingdom. 
Absolutely. And again, that's the, the beginning of Luke, which is just carrying on the same meaning from the Old Testament. And this whole scheme of the kingdom, Christ is reigning now in the hearts of his people. You know, his kingdom is here now. That whole scheme of the kingdom is not consistent with any passage in the Old Testament. And it takes just a few New Testament passages as proof text to to try to get there. But that conception of the kingdom is just not biblical. Yeah, and one of the main proof texts is where Jesus is actually talking to the people that are going to lead and putting him on the cross, the Pharisees. Right. If you just see the setting, that's obviously not what he's saying. Oh, so, so back to this millennial kingdom. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, the millennial temple that, you know, avid dispensationalists often talk about. Me and you both have preached through the book of Hebrews, and I think we would actually agree with him here that it is unlikely that there is going to be a future millennial kingdom. I, I'm not ready to come down dogmatically on that point, but. You mean temple. You keep saying kingdom. Why do I keep saying that? Maybe because I'm just tired of going through this book. Yeah, the, the millennial temple, we don't see that. I don't see that as a, a real thing either. I think there's a better explanation for what's going on at the end of Ezekiel than there is that there's going to be a future millennial temple with actual sacrifices going on because Ezekiel does talk about that being for atonement. And I believe Jesus right. fulfilled that. I believe it is fulfilled. And I, and I do, I mean, I do. This is a place where I do completely agree with him. Animal sacrifices are not compatible with the new covenant. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I do too. And I think that that is often a place that Amil's used to bring in a dispensationalist type thinker and quickly show him how he's wrong and then just drag him immediately over to the Amil side. And I don't think that's necessary. Right. No, it's not necessary. Yeah. He goes on and says God is not a nationalistic deity. He does not favor one nation or one people group over another. (sighs) Okay, so those that Christ died for are equally saved. You know, as Gentiles, we're as saved as, as Jews who are saved by the blood of Christ. But there's just no way to read the scripture and not see that Israel has a special relationship with God. Well, absolutely. I mean, you think about Deuteronomy. You know, the second law, when Moses is talking to the second generation that's about to enter the promised land. And he he makes it very clear that God had set his love on that people above all the other nations on the earth. And that it's not owing to any merit or anything to commend them or certainly not their actions. But it's it's because of of God's sovereign love that he had placed upon them and Romans 9 to 11 upholds that God has not cast away uh, his people uh, you know he's he's not done and so what he revealed actually as you progress through the Old Testament he revealed that his meditorial kingdom uh, upon this earth that Adam lost is is actually going to be regained through the kingdom of Israel and it is through that kingdom uh, that Christ is going to reign uh, on David's throne over that kingdom, and that reign will spread throughout all of the earth. So I, I don't, you know, this is just, I really don't know how he can make this statement uh, that is just completely contrary to uh, what we understand in the Old Testament and really what the New Testament upholds as well. Absolutely. And then even when you get to the the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, you still have, 
men living outside the city of the New Jerusalem, bringing the grandeur and wealth of the nations, you know, into it. So there's right. still a difference between nations there. Uh, Revelation, Absolutely. 21, Revelation 21, 6, they will bring into it, the New Jerusalem, the glory and honor of the nations. That's the eternal state. You've still got nations at that time. So right. I, I think he's just overstating there. And by the way, he would believe Revelation 21 is part of Revelation that is still future. So he's going to have to explain that himself. Anything else on that appendix? Well, when you come down to the end, uh, this is his last statement. We who are Gentiles joined the originally Jewish church to proclaim the rule of the Messiah throughout the earth. And we take back territory for God and his people through the gospel in the name of Jesus. Which, again, he is uh, tipping toward postmillennialism here with this statement. But this, it's just inaccurate. We proclaim today the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we proclaim a message about his coming kingdom. Because he's coming to, to judge. Just like, you know, Paul preached um, when he preached about judgment to come uh, there in the, in the book of Acts. So, yeah, we do preach about that. We preach about the return of Christ. We preach about the coming judgment, the, the day of the Lord. And we preach about his coming kingdom. But this idea that we're taking back territory for God, that we're, you know, advancing his kingdom or spreading his kingdom or in some way, you know, bringing about his kingdom or, or bringing about his return is just foreign to the scripture. Which is why I assume that he says Daniel is so puzzling, because in Daniel chapter two, it says God himself will set up the kingdom. Absolutely. And, and I guess it would be puzzling to a guy. And, you know, he makes this statement. I suspect that we will be we will best understand the prophecies about Israel after God brings them to pass. But that's only because he rejects so many prophecies about Israel. You know, and that's the that's the reason he makes such a statement is that if you believed what the scripture has to say about Israel's place in Bible prophecy, then you wouldn't just be sitting here being what they call a. A pan millennialist. We'll, we'll know when it all pans out. And that's basically right. what he's, what he's saying there. The next appendix is what about the tribulation and the antichrist? I, I think this is one of the places that he probably disagrees with several of the amillennialists in some sense, but he still jumps onto this idealistic view of revelation where it's just the same story told over and over and over from different vantage points. And I, I just don't see that we've we've looked at that sort of ad nauseum. Do you want to go through that anymore? Um, just a couple things here on page 114. He says, I believe that believers went through the tribulation in 70 A.D. I also believe that some believers are going through the tribulation right now. And I believe that believers will endure the tribulation before the return of Christ. Now, you'll notice he used a definite article before all of those, the tribulation. I believe the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls are symbolic of man's evil and God's judgment throughout history, culminating in the end times before the return of Christ. I do not see these descriptions in Revelation as literal, but as symbolic of trouble throughout the earth, the same way that the prophet's prediction of Jerusalem's fall contains symbolic language. All right, a couple things. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And boy, you know, Revelation has several chapters detailing these things. Sure. Several chapters. 
Oh, well, that's just symbolic of man's evil and God's God's judgment throughout history. Well, you know, I just come away scratching my head wondering why God had to say so much to mean so little. Right. You know, seven, you know, all these chapters about it. And then he comes down and says the prophet's prediction of Jerusalem's fall contains symbolic language. Okay. And what is funny about that is, yes, but Jerusalem literally fell. So where does that leave us? You know, this is just, you know, this is just all symbolic, just symbolic, just like the prophets used symbolic language to talk about Jerusalem's fall. But Jerusalem did fall. I mean, it really happened. They were really carried away. They were carried away for the period of time that um, God spoke about. I mean, all all those things were literally fulfilled. So I, I don't understand how he how he can make that statement and then essentially brush away all this many chapters. I mean, Re- the book of Revelation is a long book. It's one of the longest books in the New Testament. And he sort of just brushes it away. Well, that's just symbolic of evil and, and, you know, various judgments that will come and, and just, you know, this period of history that's been going on for 2000 years, which is somehow the, the thousand years was symbolic of the 2000 years and, and so on. It is extremely inconsistent. It is. And he goes on and does the same thing with, Antichrist, you know, I believe Nero was an Antichrist. I believe there are many Antichrists already in the world, and I believe an Antichrist, now that's singular, will rise before the end of time to unite the nations in attacking the church. So he does believe there is coming a unique singular guy at the end of the age, and that's just got to be contrasted with Antichrist's in the path, I think he sort of contradicts himself there. The appendix on church history, I was a little bit encouraged by it, to be honest with you. First of all, I'm sure he would agree with this statement, but Scripture drives us, not history. So I'm not, at the end of the day, I'm not really super concerned about church history on this subject. Right. But amillennialists often will say that, you know, there's been no premillennialism until the time of Darby or something along those lines. And they might say, right. they might say dispensationalism, but they're really talking about premillennialism in which there is, you know, Israel. And he does admit that the view of the early church fathers was premillennialism and it was popularly hailed. He goes on and says the early writings that we do have are primarily premillennial. Now, he tries to back up and make them all historical premillennial, but he's not correct about that. Many of the right. early church fathers did believe that Israel had a future, and and that that is easily identified if you just read those. But his point in this chapter is fair enough if you carefully look at early church fathers, and of course those weren't just within the first few decades. Those were in the first few centuries. There There are various ideas about prophecy, especially after Israel was destroyed and had been destroyed for several hundred years. Guys did begin to wonder if they had a future. You would you would expect that, but right. at least he does admit that premillennialism is not new. There have been people that believe premillennialism for the entire church age, and especially there in those early years. I, this was an appendix where I just don't I don't really see where he said anything. I personally have never heard the argument that there were no church fathers that did not, you know, believe in premillennialism. I've never heard that argument. Maybe that's so. Uh, I don't know where that's at or who's making it, but maybe that's so. 
but really, I mean, ultimately he did confirm that, yes, uh, those early church fathers popularly did believe in, I forget the term, millenarianism or something as it was called in earlier, in earlier times, but, you know, that there were also some that did not hold that position. I mean, I just, again, I just don't even, I don't really see what this, uh, what this appendix said. I have just heard it said that, you know, premillennialism wasn't really believed until the last couple hundred years. Uh, I've heard that often. And I, well, I think I, that's the argument that, that usually is when they go back and they say, no, the church fathers here held millennial views. Now, all millennialism, I don't believe became, uh, such a popular and established view until the time of Augustine, just like he was talking about there. But, uh, I don't know of anybody that, that has said that it just never existed prior to that time. In Augustine's defense, you know, there had been about 300 years where Israel had not existed and there, sure. there seemed to be no hope. For them, but even before the 1940s, when Israel took their land back, there were still guys saying in the 1800s, uh, "No, look, there will be a future restoration of Israel on their land." So, that, there have been premillennialists that saw the need of a restoration of Israel for the entire, you know, church age. That doesn't mean it was always the dominant view. It may may not have been at times, but it was still there. I'm I'm still a little surprised also that he even wanted to get into this because, you know, tracing back to Augustine, which I would think is a point probably embarrassing for all millennialists, but that does, you know, reinforce to us that, you know, yes, all millennialism is the uh, view of the Roman Catholic Church. Sure. <laughs> and that is certainly true, right? You know, all millennialism is the view of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, the reformers when they when they left and you know, I'm I'm certainly glad that they left and began to preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They obviously suffered a bunch of persecution because of it. But this is one subject where they didn't distance themselves very much. No. All right. Well, we're we're finished with the book, including the appendices. And I would say that it still comes down to just a hermeneutic difference for us. I think that is the, that's the key issue. Uh, really they're just hermeneutical issues because again, when you're going to talk about these individual passages, then the way you approach the Bible as a whole is, is going to come into play. Honestly, I, I kind of felt like the wheels just came off for him there toward the end. It seemed like the, those last couple of chapters and these appendices just had a lot more inconsistencies in them than some of the earlier parts, but it, it's just, um, it's an unnatural way of reading any text. We just don't, we don't treat any text that way, that we're just going to go through this large body of work. We're going to look for statements here and there that we deem to be clear and simple. And we're just, we're just going to use those to reinterpret uh, any other passages that we don't deem to be clear and simple and, and make them come into line with that. That's just, and I'm also willing to to guess that he probably doesn't approach the Bible that way with any other aspect of doctrine except for prophetic doctrine. I, I just maybe he does. I, I don't know, but I I doubt it. I doubt he approaches the Bible that way in any other any other context. I was just about to say the same thing. I I cannot imagine that this would be the way he approached any other subject because let's just be honest. There are places that are clear, quote unquote, but don't harmonize with 
every single other verse on this particular subject. So we know that whatever we think is clear actually isn't. You know, we've got to make right. sure that the Bible harmonizes as a whole, which again is why he has just completely ignored the Old Testament with the exception of that appendix on Daniel, which I didn't think he did, you know, too much there. But this, this just all goes back to a hermeneutical issue. Do you believe the New Testament completely reinterprets the Old Testament? I do not. Or do you believe that we are just given further information in the New Testament? In other words, the New Testament completes the Bible, but it doesn't go back and reinterpret all the promises of the Old Testament. That's my view. That's not his view, and we're just we're just in a different place on that. Right. Yeah. And so that, and I agree with you. I, I believe that the the Bible is a revelation from beginning to end. And it was, you know, given over time and in different parts, uh, as you read about there in Hebrews 1 and 2. And the revelation was completed with the coming of Christ and through uh, his apostles that he taught. And uh, the Spirit guided into all truth as they recorded that for us. And I, it's a continuous, progressive revelation. So as you get further away from, you know, the the Pentateuch, which lays the foundation for the rest of scripture, as you get further away, you are adding information, you are clarifying, but you're not changing or reinterpreting any or replacing anything that came before. Absolutely. Anything else? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's, um, I don't think he, I don't think, well, he certainly didn't convince me of his position and, uh, I I really don't know how you could have a book dealing with some of the subjects he's trying to deal with and just not touch the Old Testament until you get to, you know, this very brief few words about Daniel. I agree. He did not convince me either. I do plan on reading uh, another book on amillennialism later this year, perhaps, and hopefully it will be uh, something that I feel like is more consistent in its approach to Scripture. But Honestly, this one sort of dug my heels in that uh, premillennialism is the, the place for me to be. <laughs> right. Hope everybody has a great day. This is Just Jerry Live signing off.